I thought that today, um, even though I originally said we would um, move on to a second little mini-series this week, I'm going to take one more week to uh, about worship, if you saw that in the Friday evening announcement. Um, we're going to talk about communion and especially the theology of communion. And then we're going to also talk about a couple of other uh, smaller parts of the service, the offering, the benediction, and the fellowship afterwards. We're not going to talk about the announcements. Um, but let's begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a lovely day. We thank you that we're now in the last full month of winter. And uh, we thank you for the coming spring just around the corner and Lord we thank you for the, all the, that you have in store for us this morning in our gathering and pray that you'd be with us here and help us to be uh, eagerly listening to you we pray in Jesus name Amen Alright so we talked about um, the Lord's Supper a little bit we talked about um, the wine. We talked a little bit about doing it every week. <clears throat> but we didn't talk much about the theology of communion, especially as um, it diff- our theology of the communion differs from other branches of the church. And so I thought I'd review that a little bit with you this morning. Um, and this is one of the big divisions, one of the big divides between different branches of the church is the different way they, that, the, they, that communion is approached. Um, very early on, after the apostles were all gone, um, and, I, and a notion of uh, communion was embraced that involved a believing that Jesus was physically present in the Lord's Supper and that we were and that believers were actually feeding upon him in the flesh not just symbolically but uh, or spiritually but in the flesh the way that that was worked out over the centuries and, and explained was that the bread and the wine actually miraculously are transformed into the body and blood of Jesus, even though it still looks like bread and wine. And this view came to be called transubstantiation. The substance is transformed. And uh, not in it the way it appears, but in the, what it actually is. And a good analogy of that is what we see today in this crazy movement that's going on of decorating cakes to look like just about anything. Have you seen some of that? You know, you have a cake that looks like a toilet plunger, or you have a cake <laughs> that looks like, you know, a train set. It's, it's crazy, but... They really look like those things. And they have contests 
where on TV where people guess which is the whether which is the cake and which is the real thing, and it's it, because it's so accurate. And that's what they basically say is that it looks like bread and wine, but it's really not. It's the actual body and blood of Jesus that is made that now bears the the uh, very close resemblance to bread and wine. Um, and th- that a miracle is performed right there in the worship service where this bread is changed into the body and blood of Jesus. And that's why at that moment when the priest holds up the elements, people fall on their knees because Jesus just walked in the room. So, um, and this of course is based on the... Uh, fact that Jesus said this is my body this is my blood now um, when Martin Luther came along in the early 1500's and was objecting to various teachings in the uh, Catholic Church one of, this is one of the teachings that he objected to but he came up with an explanation that is actually very close to the Catholic view. And it, we refer to that in theology as consubstantiation. Not transubstantiation, but consubstantiation. And the idea is that the, the body and flesh of Jesus invisibly inhabits the bread and the wine. That the bread and the wine are still bread and wine. But Jesus in his flesh comes and lives in the bread and the wine. So that when you're partaking of the bread and the wine, they don't stop being bread and wine like they do in the Catholic view. But they become, they contain the uh, body and blood of Jesus. Or they're with. That's what consubstantiation means. Con means with. Like chili con carne means beans with meat. And then, um, the, the, of course, while Luther was doing his thing and the, and the Lutheran movement was beginning, there was also beginning a reformed movement in Switzerland, in Geneva, um, under the leadership of Eurich Zwingli. And um, actually, I'm not sure it was Geneva at first. But anyway, um, Zwingli was basically the first um, reformer who was, um, you know, the, the one that really started the reformed kind of um, movement in the Re- Reformation. Luther was very reformed in many ways. The big w- exception to that what we call Reformed theology today, Luther was very Reformed, except in the area of communion, which is what we're talking about today. So Zwingli and Luther were very similar, except communion, and what Zwingli said on communion was that the Lord's Supper was just a remembrance, just a memorial. It reminded us of what Jesus did. And... um, that, that the bread and the wine are symbols of what? Of the bread, of the body and blood of Jesus and not 
Jesus is actually in the bread and the wine. Um, of course, the great um, intellectual architect of Reformed theology is John Calvin, who came a little bit later, and um, he said something that I'm sure that Zwingli would have agreed with if he had heard it, but um, but he didn't um, have that opportunity, and so. Um, but what Calvin said is that Jesus is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper, not physically present. And that is very consistent with a number of other kinds of language in the Bible about the presence of God in certain situations. You know, we know that God is present everywhere and uh, that he is um, and yet that he is present especially in certain ways, um, like where two or three thank you sweetie, like where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. So we know when God's people gather that the Lord is present in a special way. Now what does that mean? He's either present or he's not present. Well, it really, you can't use technically, logically, technically, you can't really use locational language about God. God doesn't have a location. He is, he doesn't have, he can't be contained anywhere. This kind of language is used all through the Bible to refer to ways that God manifests himself. So God is present, you know, like in, in Psalm, what is it, 139, where wherever I go, there he is. Well, God is present everywhere. Even in hell, God is present. In, in, in that sense of his omnipresence. But he manifests his presence. That is, he shows himself. He acts. He reveals himself. He, uh, he displays his, himself in certain contexts more than in others. And so maybe even you've experienced this yourself. Maybe even you feel like you've had times where sort of God shows up. You know, it's like other times it just seemed ordinary. And this evening, this Bible study that you had was like God was there in our midst. Well, that's what's going on. It's not a locational thing. It's that God displayed himself. He revealed himself in that time. He made his presence known. And you see this with, you know, all through the Old Testament, with Moses at the, at the uh, b- burning bush. You know, God is here. And it's, there's, um, in a way that he hadn't been the day before when Moses was out wandering in the wilderness in the same kind of way, right? So, um, and these are precious things. This isn't something to be taken lightly. Oh, it's not real because it's just um, using locational language. No, this is very real. This is what we're after. This is what we're going to have in heaven. We're going to have this without limit and without barrier. 
This is what, what we're made for, is to be in the presence of God and enjoy His being there and present with us. And so this is a big thing. And Calvin's point was that God shows, him, shows up in the communion, spiritually. You know, He doesn't show up physically. Um, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father physically. He's not omnipresent in his body just as he wasn't omnipresent after his resurrection with the disciples you know there's no story there's lots of stories about Jesus visiting people but they're all one at a time he didn't visit six different groups or six different people at the same time after his resurrection he can't be in many places at one time he's at one place Physically, That's the nature of not only these bodies, but the bodies that we'll have in heaven. When we're in heaven, we won't be able to be 20 different places in the universe at the same time. We'll be like we are now, one place at a time. Now, travel-wise, it'll be different, it seems. But in terms of that aspect, one place at one time, it'll be the same. And so... Uh, but Calvin said, but they, you know, this is a far greater presence in many ways than the presence of, it, than if he did show up. Just like when Jesus said, it's good for you if I go away. For if I go away for you, I can send you the Holy Spirit. And the, the disciples were actually better off with the Holy Spirit than they had been with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus could only talk to a few people at a time. Jesus was there, but if they went to sleep, Jesus was in the next tent. But with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was always there with them, and even in them. Although that's locational language too, and it needs to be taken with the same understanding. So, what about the passages where Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood? Well, these are, this is the kind of language that's used often in the, in the Bible to, to refer to something that's symbolic. Um, so, you know, like uh, when he says, I am the shepherd, I am the door, he's not referring to literal uh, things, he's referring to symbolic things. Not only this, but when Jesus took that bread and he held it up to them and he said this is my body that bread he was talking about that he was talking about this is my body everybody agrees it wasn't his body even the Catholics agree that it wasn't his body because his body was here not in the bread in his hand now they say he was talking in an anticipatory sense. But he didn't say, this will be my body. He said, this is my body. So that's basically, you know, when we're taking communion, that's why we don't just say this is a remembrance, but we say, Jesus is here. We're meeting, to, we can meet Jesus here. God calls us to, to anticipate drawing near to him and experiencing his presence with us he shows himself to us in the Lord's Supper and 
You know, it's not just a helpful mental reminder, but but he is present, spiritually present, which is really the greatest way that he is present with us. Um, okay, any questions or things to um, ask, uh, uh, comment about with regard to that? David. I mean, that's not the way it's been. I mean, how can I say this? There are, um, you know, it can be a sincere mistake, a theological mistake, but again, you're not saved by your theology. You can, it can be an idol, but idolatry is not a matter of theology, it's a matter of the heart. You know, Augustine is a great, uh, was a great theologian that Calvin and Luther both admired and many people have uh, esteemed for all of the things that he wrote, but of course he, he believed in this too. So it has not been um, thought of, it's thought of as, as wrong-headed and and erroneous, but not like um, it, it ruins the possibility of someone being a Christian or something like that. Um, you know, although again, you know, idolatry is a serious thing, but you can you can make the doctrine of communion idolatrous your idol. So it's that's that's the case on every side. Every theology is vulnerable to idolatry in various ways. So, do you, do you think it's a sin issue? I guess what I'm getting at is like how how do we if you run into someone who believes these things, what should be your attitude about talking? Is this is this a theological disagreement? You know, it is a theological issue, and whether it's a sin issue or not is something God has to judge in an individual person's heart. Um, no, we should not presume that it's a sin issue, it seems to me. Um, just like if someone has a different view on baptism. You you know it's it can be a sin issue. Um, you know someone can be clinging to their to what they learned you know in an idolatrous kind of way or just pr- out of pride. 
But it isn't necessarily that. Someone can, you know, really be like, show me God and, and studying the Bible and come to that conclusion. So it's not, it's not necessarily a sin issue. George. Um, well, I don't know that there's, there has to be a difference just because of the theology. It matters how much the theology is um, the focus or the, the issue with someone. It seems to me that, that uh, you know, when, when you say... Um, when I say, Lord, be with us, when we pray at the beginning of the service, Lord, be with us here, meet us here, um, I'm not thinking theologically, oh, I mean spiritually, of course, Lord, don't, don't come to us physically. Um, I'm not thinking about the theology, but the theology is the foundation and the basis of why I would pray that. And so I don't know that it's... Um, you know, if people are just longing to be with Jesus and longing to feed on Jesus, then it, it isn't necessarily um, necessarily a difference between uh, the two ways. However, if someone is, is um, focused on the big miracle that's going to occur and that we're going to actually see Jesus face to face, that can be a problem. Um, for us, you know, it's, um, we need you, Jesus. We're hungry for you. You are our true food. And by the way, that's another important passage in this whole thing. In the, near the end of John 6, where Jesus says, my body is true food and my blood is true drink. Um, what he's saying there is that, um, there's the food that you eat, you know, the sandwiches and the soup you're going to have for lunch this afternoon and the eggs or cereal you had for breakfast this morning. Those are actually real food. Real food, like Jesus said to the woman at the well when he talked about the difference between the water that she was drawing in the well and the water that he wanted to give her, which was living water. The real water, you drink it and it, you never thirst again. The real food will satisfy you so you never have to eat again. And that's Jesus. He's the true food. He's the true drink. Somehow, this has been twisted. Um, to say something is really not saying. And that, that the Catholic view would really like it to say... Um, for uh, this food is truly Jesus. This, this, my flesh is, this food is truly my flesh. But it says, my flesh is true food. Jordan. Just to kind of build on that, um, just from what the Westminster Confession says, 
you know, this is a perpetual remembrance of a sacrificial death, and it's a seal of all the benefits uh, of that sacrifice to us as the true believers. It promotes our spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ, um, our increased commitment in and to all the duties that we owe to Him, and it's to be a bond and pledge of our communion with Him and with each other. And I think that aspect of fellowship is really important. The communion that we have in Christ. Uh, growing up, you know, I was sometimes here, you know, even in Protestant churches, of that being an altar. But it's not an altar. You know, an altar is a place of sacrifice. That's a table. Um, it's a place of fellowship that we have with Christ and with one another within His church in a, in a mysterious way. So I think that that's a very important aspect of, of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Rebecca. You, at the very beginning, you said something like, this view came to be. Do we have an idea of what the view, whatever time you're thinking about when it came to be? Um, well, first maybe you could clarify, did you mean a certain time? Like, did you mean like the 300s or something? And then also, like, what do we know what the view was before that? Well, we know from the New Testament. But no, I mean, that's... Um, we don't have much... You know, I'm certainly no expert on the second century, which is the... the uh, um, the You know, a, a, a century where we don't know very much. That's why it's so valuable that... that uh, uh, what's his name? Wrote that book on the second century. Um, Michael Kruger, um, who's a PCA teaching elder and a professor at Reform Seminary. Okay, so um, yeah, you know, you you can't. I don't think you can argue either case from um, by you know, studying what happened in the second century and the third century because, first of all, um, it's not clear. They're, both sides argue from the same eras their position. And second of all, we just don't know that much. My view and the, you know, the classic Reformation view is that the... Um, no matter how, you know, Jesus came bringing radical new ideas, and he that butted up against so many of the th ways of thinking of Judaism and even other religions, and and so that's why he shocked so many and disturbed so many, and the apostles' teaching did the same, but that didn't just like stop the momentum of this giant ball that was rolling down through history about what the way people thought before that. And so um, when Jesus and the apostles were gone, there's still a lot of momentum of that ball. And it took centuries and even into today that that, that same old way of thinking that involved you know, a kind of connection between physical things and spiritual realities. 
which you know we think of in American society as sort of superstition where you know if you just do this in the physical realm it will change things in the spiritual realm um, which I think Jesus and Paul and the New Testament you know contradict it, you know they say these things have passed away this uh, these, th- these lambs and bulls and goats that were sacrificed, they didn't actually forgive sins. And so, uh, and these foods that, you're, that you were told not to eat, they didn't actually make people unclean. It was a picture. And now the purpose of that is over. But it's hard to let go of it. And so, uh, um, you know, in my opinion, that's why so early in the church, after the apostles were gone, these things uh, got traction. And a lot of these old ideas that were still a part of the culture and still a part of Judaism and still a part of society... um, began to be connected with the things that Christ brought and uh, um, anyway, you get the point okay can we move on from this because I'd like to cover all a couple of other subjects um, I, I made my wife go get this so I should make use of it um One other place in the New Testament, which where Jesus talks about, you know, enjoying doing something in order to enjoy His presence, like um, two or three are gathered there, I am in the midst. Jesus says at the after the Great Commission, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. And the point of that is that in the effort to spread the gospel and make disciples of every nation Jesus says I'm with you in it this isn't something I'm just sending you out to do I'm going with you and this is another thing about why it's better that we have the Holy Spirit because when Jesus sent out his disciples two by two he couldn't go with them all but now with the Holy Spirit he can go with them all through the Spirit and so when we're doing that, we're to do it in the confidence that we're not alone. That Jesus is with us in this task of communicating the gospel to others. And uh, also in John fourteen twenty three, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and will come to him and make our and we will come to him and make our home with him. So, do you want God to come into your life? Well, here's what it says do. Love God, keep his word, and he will come. He will make his home with you. And so, you know, it's sort of like what James says, you know, seek me, and I, or, or uh, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. So God, at certain times, shows up. He manifests himself. 
And one of those times is the Lord's Supper. Um, okay, now the other, um, I want to talk for a moment about um, the fellowship before and after the service. Um, because, you know, it's easy for us when we come to worship to just think of worship as something that starts with the um, prelude and ends with the benediction. It doesn't end with the announcements, by the way. That's not worship. Don't think of that as worship. That's why we don't have it in the worship service. And I think many of us, it's like when we go to another church, it's like they stop right in the middle of the service and they have an announcement. What is going on here? It's like, why are you doing this in the middle of a worship service? This is not worship. Anyway, uh, so, um, but, that you know, it reminded me when this when we talk about before and after the service. It reminded me of the uh, many of the psalms, which are called songs of ascent, and uh, even in the introduction, a lot of the psalms say a song of ascent. Now, what that means is that these are songs that were written for and sung by um, the traveling. Um, Israelites as they were going to Jerusalem. They were going up to Jerusalem, which was on Mount Zion. So it was traveling up in terms of uh, altitude. And um, and so they are going and they're singing together. And this is a beautiful thing. This idea that they're traveling to worship. Why are they going? They're not going to trade and go to the marketplace, hang out at the mall. That's not the point. They are going for the festivals, for the feasts, for the Passover, for the Feast of Booths. And, and, they're, and they're going together with their brothers and sisters. And they love, they meet on the road and they walk together and they sing. And it's a beautiful picture of um, the idea of how their anticipation of drawing near to God and meeting with God sweetens their very travels to the city. And I think it gives us a little picture of, you know, the way that worship our, and our eagerness to worship God ought to sweeten our, our, our time as we're gathering together. You know, from the moment the second person walks into the door to the time that we begin, and even after the last late person comes in, um, you know, there's a certain joy in our gathering because the gathering means we're going to be with God. And that's a wonderful thing. My, one of my favorite songs of ascent is Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been, are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So, you know, here, um, there's this joy of anticipation that they're going to go and be in God's house. 
and how, how happy they are as they get closer and closer and as they put their feet in the holy city of God where which what's so holy about the city it's because that's where God is in his temple and so um, and I just think that as we're anticipating worship that kind of spirit of anticipation and joy is, is what we ought to desire and seek to cultivate now that doesn't mean that you know you can't come to church with a heavy heart obviously um, you know there's also people that are going to show up like Job you know the Lord gives and the Lord takes away blessed be the name of the Lord and their worship is by faith even though their hearts are lying on the floor as Tevye says in uh, Fiddler on the Roof um, so um, I'm not trying to say that you know you're you're in sin if you not don't come with a smile on your face but I do think that we ought to be mindful of the that, that this is the greatest joy we can experience in the world is to be with God to be near to God and and that ought to sweeten and ignite our fellowship as we gather um, it's not just because these are dear friends that we know well or haven't seen for a while you know that kind of thing you know it's it, this shouldn't just be the way it is when you're going to your own church if you're on vacation and you visit a church it should be the same way these are God's people I've met so many people in churches when either on vacation or for some reason you know being at like last week when I was went to uh, Austin Kettle's uh, ordination service and you know all the people around me I'd never met before virtually and uh and yet, what a joyful thing it is. And I, many of them I'll never see again until heaven. But just that knowledge that I'm with my forever friends and that we're gathering together before the Lord and God of the universe who has displayed His grace for us in Christ. This ought to make these gatherings very sweet and joyful and pleasant we have a few uh, minutes um, who else would like to add something to anything that's been said or ask a question thinking for a moment then just about after the service um, I, I think it's awkward for us sometimes to uh, jump into deep, meaningful conversation after the service is over. I know it is for me. Um, and I'm in a, in a harder position than the rest of you in some ways. If I'm excited about something in the sermon, I can't bring it up after I go up to someone after the service. Because it sounds like I'm ask, looking for uh, you know, praise or something like that. Um, but I, I do often feel like I don't really know how I want 
to engage in deep, meaningful conversation, but I often find myself just chatting about what's going on with you, what's going on with me, you know, where were you last week, whatever, instead of uh, talking about what we just did, you know. When we leave the presence of God, you know, what's on our minds? What are we, have we been impacted? And that's what we should be talking about. Any thoughts on that? Well, Chris? I, this was my thought throughout when you started alluding to both fellowship before and after. And I don't mean to be obtuse or anything, but do we, at the end of the benediction, is it like that's a pause and then we can have announcements and then we start back up and then have worship in our fellowship afterwards? I mean, I know you're making a distinction there that the announcements are not part of worship, but it's somewhere in the middle between what you're speaking to, kind of a fellowship, worship, atmosphere, after that. Are you saying, could we do the announcements before? Well, I, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm just wondering how all that flows, as if... Because I'm tracking with everything. Yeah. That, oh, you mean because it it does it? Distinction. We make a point of saying the, that the announcements are outside of the worship service, but then we're kind of like thinking now we start up the worship service and in a sense again after the announcements. I, I don't know. I, it's I, just. A, it just. But we do like the announcements at the end, right? Correct. So how do we start the worship service after when you the announcement? When you're, when you're looking to the, the you mean, fellowship oh, okay. afterwards. You mean it, it may be disruptive yeah. of, of our right. thought patterns. The worship service. I mean, okay, I see what you mean. I, yeah, I'm not talking about that the fellowship afterwards is part of the worship service. I'm just saying, you know, in light of that it is a worship service, how ought we be conversing afterwards? But... You're right. It does. It can disrupt our train of thought. It can sort of bring us back down to practical things, you know, schedule things, the kind of things that that uh, and that promote chatting instead of the kind of things that we just were thinking about in the worship service. I wouldn't say that it's part of the worship service, but it's an important obligation of believers as part of the communion of the saints to engage in fellowship. You know, we shouldn't just be running through the door unless, you know, there's something we have going on. Right. But to build each other up and to bear each other's burdens, that's an important part of this experience and our obligations. Yep. Body of Christ. So. Right. Yep. Unfortunately, we don't have more time, so let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for our fellowship and for the precious opportunity that we have each week to take the Lord's Supper and pray that it, our experience of these things would grow ever deeper and that our engagement in them um, would be full today and uh, increasingly so in the future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.